Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Aparna Gopalan, and I'm going to be your host today. I'm going to be talking to Professor Maitri Jagadesan, who is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Santa Clara University, about her new book, Tea and Solidarity, Tamil Women and Work in Post-War Sri Lanka, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2019. In recent years, commodity chain analysis, which is the scholarly effort to piece together the production and consumption ends of various commodities, seems to have really taken off. For goods ranging from cotton to coffee and tobacco to tea, scholars have brought cultivators and laborers into the same frame as factory workers, retailers, tastemakers, and consumers. At first glance, tea and solidarity appears to be yet another contribution to a burgeoning literature on the politics of tea's supply chain in South Asia. But the book, in fact, is so much more. Based on the author's rich fieldwork conducted amongst hill country Tamil women living on tea plantations, the book uses feminist and decolonial methods to tell the long story of marginalization and struggle in war-torn Sri Lanka. Hill country Tamil women trace their descent from indentured coolies brought to Ceylon from southern India. As such, their stories have long been narrated largely as stories of victimization, of structural violence, landlessness, and dispossession. Challenging these conventional narratives, this book aims to recenter these women's long struggle for dignity on and off tea plantations by paying attention to the aspirations and labors with which they demand recognition for their work, with which they make homes in the wake of dispossession, and with which they desire better futures than those currently on offer. With clear, heartfelt prose, methodological imaginativeness, and careful attention to the intersecting axes of power and distinction, this book not only makes essential contributions to the fields of anthropology and gender studies, but also to scholars interested in South Asia, decoloniality, and ethical research methods. I had the pleasure of speaking with Maitri earlier today. The interview follows, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Maitri. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. For um, our listeners, could you start by discussing which something you discuss in the book, uh, which is what are the political, personal, and intellectual histories which brought you to this um, unique crossroads between Sri Lanka ethnography and women's labor on tea plantations? So I think, you know, to begin with, and you know, as a Sri Lankan American, and you know, growing up in the United States, but also um, not having access to you know either family, but also Sri Lanka um, throughout you know my childhood and adolescence. Um, the last time I was in Sri Lanka before two thousand or nineteen ninety seven was you know nineteen eighty eighty three, right before the the July riots, and so you know I think in that time I've. I had sort of witnessed a lot in as a child, um, not necessarily an intellectual engagement, but really through family, um, in, through thinking about kind of different ways in which communities within Sri Lanka were living with one another, but also families that were living apart from the country and and mourning and also witnessing, um, you know, forms of violence um, that were really unspeakable um, on so many levels. And so I think I was interested in those those complex histories um, and also kind of thinking more on a personal note what was you know my family's own history um, you know the difficult parts of the history but also thinking about you know the connections to the hill country and questions of work and and I'd always kind of been interested in questions of work I think throughout graduate school but never really um, put it together in any type of um, cohesive way until I got to the field and actually began you know investigating it within the hill country and within the plantation sector um, and I think more personally you know just the book itself you know in writing the book 
you know, I didn't really begin as an anthropologist. I think, you know, since the seventh grade, I had been kind of studying classical languages. So I studied Latin and ancient Greek and, you know, from the seventh grade through my senior year of college. And so I'd always kind of been drawn to questions of representation, um, translation and context, like how do we read something? How do we come to know um, communities through the written record? And you know, and I was always kind of, you know, I was meant to kind of study abroad. I never thought about anthropology and I was kind of study, you know, meant to study abroad. And I remember that 9-11 had happened and that junior year moment of, you know, not having, and this is very, you know, apropos for what's happening right now in our, in, in our current context, um, a lot of programs were recalled. And so I actually didn't go abroad as planned. And so I ended up taking a lot more anthropology courses. Um, and I just remember being drawn to the field because it was, you know, one of the few places that I felt was being critical at the time. Um, and I think in that post 9-11 moment, um, you know, being a South Asian American, witnessing, you know, forms of violence, hate crimes in the U.S. context, but knowing outside of the U.S. what was happening, um, you know, my anthropology courses were really, you know, the ones that were were critically taking this up. Um, I remember it kind of after 9-11 that a professor, for instance, was saying, you know, we had just been talking about the World Conference Against Racism in Durban and South Africa and, you know, thinking about the United States political out of that conference and what was the kind of context of that just days before this attack. And, you know, when that kind of, you know, climate, I think when you're in university and you're thinking about different, you know, ways that you can be engaged, I was really drawn to the way that I could have a place of, you know, investigation and skills to think about um, questioning these kinds of conditions that I was witnessing on multiple levels. Um, so, so I think that's where it kind of began with anthropology, I think, you know, and so I think about ethnography and the writing of stories and why those stories matter and who gets to write those stories. Um, so I ended up doing a master's in anthropology in that way. And so that kind of drawn to that. And I never thought it would be something I would do, you know, for the rest of my life. I, I kind of was drawn to nonprofit. I worked in domestic violence and also um, HIV AIDS grant making and higher education. So I never really kind of thought I would be doing research, but then I ended up realizing that I really wanted to stick with it um, and really I kind of stuck in my master's work with a lot of life histories and textual analysis. Um, so I think that, you know, coming into the book project, it was a very different project in that I wasn't meant to actually do work in the Hill Country to begin with. Um, because of the political climate in 2006, as I was in graduate school, the government of Sri Lanka and the Liberation Tigers of Tamililam or the LTTE, the fighting had really intensified um, and resumed in the Civil War. And so my project was meant to be on the East Coast, working with children and issues of trauma and life histories, and that had to shift. Um, so I, you know, was not going to get funding to do a project of that. And also, um, it was not safe and not for the people that I was doing work with, but also for myself. Um, so I had an advisor who had been working with Maleha Tamils in the Hill Country for a number of years. And, you know, and he was the one that actually suggested I pivot and move the project there. Um, and that wasn't easy. Um, you know, we think about, you know, graduate school and taking courses, but also, you know, thinking about your project in courses. And so you know, my early years in, in graduate school had really been thinking about a different project. So it was, it was a hard shift. And so just learning a new set of literatures and situating, um, a field project there, but kind of began that in 2008. And so that's kind of how I arrived to the, to the field work and the field site. And then it kind of over time um, progressed into something that I probably did not predict in 2008, uh, in the middle of the war as it was ending. So. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that explanation. I think it helps us better contextualize the book. Um, since the book, as you mentioned, did end up being about hill country Tamils, um, it would be helpful for listeners to know a bit more about this group of people. Who are they? Where do they come from? What are their histories? And what is their position in Sri Lankan society? So could you speak a bit to that? Sure. So, so Maleha Tamils or hill country Tamils 
are an, an ethnic minority and they're also a linguistic minority in that they speak Tamil, which is um, a, a language spoken also in, in other areas of South India, but also in places like Singapore, Malaysia, and in diasporas around the world. And um, so Hill Country Tamils specifically came to Sri Lanka um, during the British period as migrant workers. Um, they came for a various host of activities related to work. Um, they were building roads and railroads. They were serving as domestic workers, as you know, planter farmers, kind of on plantations or small holdings, but largely um, in estate economies or plantation economies, starting with coffee, but also rubber, coconut, and and tea. And tea became the kind of dominant plantation economy um, in the 1800s or late mid-1800s. And so this community had always kind of been seen as migrants or arrivants um, and not seen as kind of, you know, either indigenous or, you know, belonging to Sri Lanka, which is, you know, and thinking about kind of island histories, um, they came not only, you know, in the in the relation to Sri Lanka, but this was a community that also came to went to other places such as Fiji, Mauritius, South Africa, um, and, you know, across the kind of world in the British Empire. So that relationship has has been central to Sri Lanka's history um, as a post-colonial state and um, starting with their disenfranchisement. And so many times when people think of the civil war in Sri Lanka, they don't think about the hill country Tamils because, you know, geospatially, the hill country, which is in the south central provinces, is not part of the north and east kind of war landscapes that, you know, the media and also the sort of political, you know, actors are speaking about. Um, the hill country very much is a part of that story, because in 1948, beginning with their disenfranchisement, um, their statelessness, and also multiple forms of exclusion um, throughout the kind of early years of nation building, um, and this was kind of, you know, part of the story, but really people assume that, you know, the, the plantation sector was not part of the war and it very much was a part of it. Um, so as a community, you know, they are a distinct ethnic minority. And I think that's important to remember, but also just the, the statistical factors do speak that they are incredibly marginalized as a community in terms of access to health, um, education, and just given the kind of environmental landscape of plantations and monocropping, um, the ways in which you know the plantations themselves have been represented as remote landscapes and also are difficult to get to in terms of building infrastructure. Um, difficult in the more kind of, re, you know, everyday sense, kind of walking on roads and not having access or landfall, uh, land, you know, landfalls or landslips, but also kind of um, more politically, politically and legally, you know. So just recently, there was um, an act, the Pradesh Sabha Act, that just got lifted. This one particular article that did not allow, you know, any government development to be done on the estates um, unless the plantation superintendent authorized it. So if you can like imagine having like a pothole or, you know, land landslip and mud on the road, then, you know, you would have to get the plantation superintendents, you know, actual permission to have the government come up and clean that. So it's almost this idea that, you know, are you citizens, um, but you don't have certain access to civic rights. Um, so that on top of not having citizenship um, really did kind of, you know, create a whole host of issues um, from not having birth certificates, not being able to vote as like primary ones, but then also in terms of mobility during um, what was an incredibly um, violent civil war with, you know, heavy securitization and militarization throughout the country and specifically for Tamil speakers. So this community is kind of covering, you know, recovering from that, but also at the same time, the plantation industry um, in, in kind of being, having the plantation sector as their home, um, largely, and I say that because a lot of Hill Country Tamils don't live in the plantation sector as well, that's kind of um, has really impacted their place in Sri Lanka. Great, that's very that's very helpful to situate us. So thank you so much for that explanation. Um, 
In the early chapters of the book, you describe some of what you began to mention um, earlier, where you talk about how the ongoing um, final years of the war changed your research. Um, so in addition to changing um, the site of the research, you also mentioned that because of surveillance concerns, um, you were prevented from directly observing plantation activities, which are traditionally coded as work, um, such as plucking, um, weeding, factory labor, accounting. Um, you also write that the same factors also foreclosed your access to masculinist um, traditional research methods, such as collecting statistical data or household surveys. Um, so to what extent did, did this particular configuration of surveillance factors bring you to what you call a humanistic, decolonial, and feminist methodology? And could you give our listeners a sense of what these methodologies are and how, um, what sets them apart from kind of traditional ways of doing research and why they might be desirable even in so-called peacetimes? Sure. So, I, you know, I began research in 2008, late 2008, and the Civil War had resumed and it was very much um, a surveillance state. So every place that you go, you do have to um, register with the police and you also have to, you know, and the registration was not so much, you know, the stress on me, actually, it was more the concern for those who had to vouch for me as a researcher. So every place that I went, I had to have someone who was a Sri Lankan citizen or had a, a national identity card go with me to the police station and say, this person is staying with us. She's a US citizen. She is doing research. Here are her visa. Here's her papers. Um, this was, you know, to have that kind of um, relationship and to recognize that burden in times of war, I was really aware of. Um, I think on the in the plantation sector, I had done kind of you know looking at the literatures of how plantations are spoken about um, in the South Asian context, and I think that you know in my you know more recent work, I'm kind of interested in looking at you know this kind of regionalism and you know not looking beyond the beyond the South Asian you know, disciplines of, you know, how we think about plantations. And, you know, so I'm kind of interested in, you know, exploring, you know, why have we not looked at, you know, certain types of methodologies? Um, in Sri Lanka, particularly, and I talk about this a little bit in chapter one, um, plantations are talked about in a certain way. Um, data is configured in a certain way. <clears throat> so thinking about, you know, whether it's having statistical data on households, um, asking, you know, people what their caste is, um, coming in with tablets or coming in with, you know, paper surveys. I, I keep thinking, you know, as I was doing this research, I just kept thinking, you know, my questions are not my questions, right? My questions are actually, they have, you know, lineages with all types of questioning. Um, they have, you know, people on the plantation sector and also in Sri Lanka are familiar with questioning that comes from law enforcement, that comes from police, Navy and military and questions that come from UNHCR and also, you know, save the children. So when you ask questions, what is the nature of those questions and have the people that you've been speaking to been asked questions before that they are thinking about when you you don't even know, <laughs> right? So it was this question of almost kind of imagining that, you know, I'm not alone in doing this research. This plantation sector has a whole history of being researched and being studied. So what kinds of information could I learn that would not only be new, and that's more in a social science sense, what would be new to be investigated, but what could it tell us about the ways in which people want to be researched um, and want to be engaged in a research context? And so I began, you know, being interested in it because I noticed that at least in the tea plantation sector, um, anthropologists really hadn't, you know, investigated women's work. Um, when I think about women's work, not necessarily the plucking, maybe they had looked at plucking or wages, but they hadn't looked at the actual pay stubs, or they hadn't looked at the ways in which, you know, women valued the income that was coming in through being a child laborer, for instance. Um, child labor was always seen as shameful because it was a human rights violation. So I was interested in kind of questioning the ways in which, you know, 
these certain kind of features of plantation life had been researched before and finding new ways to look at that data and finding ways to think about um, more ethical ways of, you know, speaking with people about what are really, you know, um, very difficult conditions of life and work um, that are not to be kind of um, told as these kind of, um, you know, victim stories or killer stories, as I refer to, to use Ursula Le Guin's um, phrase. And so I got interested in that because we often do hear the stories um, that are kind of the killer stories of the plantations and therefore to focus on desire, to focus on aspiration um, was a, a methodological choice for me in that. Great. That's, that's actually um, anticipate, an- anticipating my, my next question, which was precisely going to be about this um, notion of killer stories, stories of structural violence or victimhood um, or rights violations. Um, and you say that in these stories, there's a denial of desire and agency, as you just mentioned. Um, could you illustrate this for us with an example, perhaps, of um, the killer story of the coolie and how um, that story, what what it conceals, and how you in the book try to move past it? Sure, I am. Um, <clears throat> I was drawn to, you know, I was drawn to. I think coming from a background in working in nonprofit, um, the use of testimony and the use of storytelling, um, often in the third person and often not in the first person. So kind of people, you know, using stories to tell a particular tale, to sell a particular narrative. And oftentimes in the plantation sector, I just, I would be so interested in the way that stories would be circulated. Um, So as soon as you kind of walk into the airport, for instance, you see a woman with her hands kind of clasped at her heart, you know, in a sort of, you know, a very this namaste kind of, you know, greeting. And she is from the plantation sector and you see the tea behind her. Um, and so that that is a story that images is conveying a story of nation, but also of welcoming of a complicity of, you know, a complicity with this story of tea. And so I got interested in sort of, you know, how do those types of stories, the welcoming stories, the the suturing stories, the ones that kind of ask us to kind of um, accept a kind of hegemonic narrative of work and labor on the plantations, how do those coexist alongside the, the ones that are calling, you know, Hill Country Tamils, slaves of slaves, and also, you know, women with triple burdens and, you know, women that are puppets on a string, you know, and I refer to this kind of body of literature, um, which came with very good intentions to want to save women, to want to raise attention. But how do those stories um, exist in not only scholarly literatures alongside media, tourism, and also industrial narratives. And so those stories, you know, the killer stories, the ones that kind of make a difference, the ones that, you know, but also hide humanity, as as Le Guin says, you know, are the ones that, you know, tend to stay and stick. But at the same time, I found that women's stories um, were disrupting that stickiness. Um, the ones that I was was hearing in the field and the ones that I continue to hear as I do longitudinal work are stories that don't have ends. And yet we often in human rights you know, discourse and also in ethnography, we create ends and we have to seek an end of a story. And oftentimes in tourism, too, there is an end to a story. So those ends are quite productive. And for whom is the question I think I was interested in. Um, for those. And so, you know, the examples kind of ranged. I think each chapter has killer stories in some way. And I think, you know, the one that speaks out to me the most comes from the chapter, um, the dignity and shame chapter, which was the story of two young girls when I was doing field work in August 2009, were whose bodies were found in a high security zone. And they were hill country Tamil girls, and they were also, um, you know, you know, identified as children later on in the fact. Um, I got interested in the story because the people around me in the hill country were mobilizing around the story as a human rights violation, as a question of child labor, um, as symptomatic of the collective wage agreements failing, um, the inability of unions to pick up the workers um, and to secure a living wage. 
um, that would result, you know, because of that, you know, these children were going off to plantations. So these were the, the narratives that came out. Um, and I think the, the story that was most poignant to me was when I was able to, you know, interview then a form, you know, a member of parliament where they actually, you know, say, you know, when they were scolding the parents of those workers to say, why did you go and send your children off to, you know, the capital to go and get killed? That They said right back to him, you know, well, what are the alternatives here? And so even in that recording of his shame, and he actually did talk a lot about feeling ashamed. He's like, I had no idea what to say to these parents because they were absolutely right, you know. And so that shame, I thought, was important to document um, alongside kind of calls for dignity. So I think like, you know, as we think about these stories, they have to be uncomfortable. And oftentimes, the tea industry and also nation building and thinking about, you know, the, the quest for rights don't want the comfortable stories. They want um, narratives that um, serve particular ends. So I was interested in kind of having a book that could talk about those discomforting narratives. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for um, going into that more. Um, you mentioned the politics of shaming, and um, you discuss in one of the chapters in a great deal more detail um, the different kinds of labor shaming that are practiced upon hill country Tamil women, um, and then their responses to it. So, just as you said, um, the response being, "What is the alternative?" Um, there are other responses you discuss in terms of migrant labor being revalued um, by hill country women as um, a form of um, social capital um, or affording them um, an increased level of dignity. So um, could you talk a bit more about um, the way that hill country Tamil women themselves revalue um, certain types of work and devalue other types of work um, along the axis of dignity in order to challenge this labor shaming? Sure. I, you know, and this was, again, something that, you know, in looking at the literatures before I began this project, um, not many anthropologists had addressed, you know, in full, in a full sense, the fact that, you know, only 16% or, you know, a little under 20% now of the plantation residents on the estates are actually full-time workers. Um, and, you know, thinking about that statistic as I moved into research and they increasingly got, you know, declined in terms of being a resident workforce, um, that was sort of taken as the kind of basis for data collection. Like, you know, we're assuming that we're walking in and everyone is a plantation worker. And that's just simply not the case. And so, and it hasn't been the case for a while, which I thought was, you know, important. So, you know, in looking at archival work, um, you know, not, people are, you know, within the plantation sector, Hill Country Tamils were doing a number of forms of migrant work, internal migrant work in the capital or in Hill Tation towns, but also doing work, um, you know, increasingly from the 70s and 80s in other, um, in other countries abroad. Um, so, the, you know, thinking about kind of the stigmas that are attached to agricultural work, and these are particularly caste and class-based stigmas in the Sri Lankan context, but also I think within South Asia, this has a larger discourse as well. Um, this kind of caste and class-based oppression um, really does get attached to the plantation sector in terms of mobility within the industry, but also um, in terms of the wage and what people are earning and how work is seen. Um, you know, some of the stories that are increasingly um, helpful for me to kind of remember because we kind of think about the larger, um, you know, larger questions of a living wage and also wage negotiations with unions. But, you know, the more kind of questions that I got interested in were from a woman's perspective and also her family's perspective. What does it mean to do plantation work? Um, so, you know, I think back to, you know, how many times I've heard from women that, you know, for instance, that their um, hands are, you know, they're, they're 
co- covered in kind of the oil from the plant, from the leaf itself. And, you know, in Tamil, the word is karam. So this idea of kind of a blackness of hands. So that anti-colorism and all this kind of, or this colorism and the kind of anti-blackness that is in that language and thinking about kind of caste oppression as well, this idea of kind of dirt and, um, you know, touching of, you know, being doing manual labor was something that, you know, fed into kinship practices in marriage relations and intercaste relations within the hill country community. Um, so you did see a number of kind of, you know, what would be called higher caste, you know, populations or communities within the hill country that were, you know, kind of resisting and were able to resist doing plantation work and also being able to resist domestic work and other forms of labor that were kind of attributed to shame. Um, and to so there was this kind of, you know, within the community, a lot of politics around what is the work that you do. Um, and one of, I think, the the more telling stories about the prestige of doing migrant work was, I mean, countless times as I did research, you know, I would kind of either hear on a bus or talk with people and ask, you know, so-and-so is doing, you know, just started working. And I'd be like, what kind of work do you do? And they would say to, to me in Tamil, they do Kalambo Vele. And that just translates in Tamil to work in Colombo, which is work in the capital. Um, and I noticed um, not so much that, and I, I actually started to say that, start, started to not ask as well, but after they would say Colombo Vele, no one would ask for a clarification. No one would ask what kind of work they're doing. They would just kind of pause and, you know, take it in. And it was just that prestige would kind of fill the space. Um, and I would learn to do it as well in my own questions. I wouldn't be like, well, what kind of work are they doing? Is it domestic work? Is it shop work? Are they working in a telecommunication store? Are they working in a garment factory? But it didn't matter because the kind of um, the the signal of Colombo was was incredibly prestigious. And this was, you know, important. You know, I did it, you know, just saying Colombo Vele, you could say, okay, they're getting a different type of salary. Um, they're getting a salary or an income that is not on a check roll on a plantation. It's not how many kilos you can pick of tea so that your shoulders and your back hurt and you get leech bites and you have stains on your hands. They're doing some kind of work where they're actually coming back to the home, um, furnishing it with, you know, things from Colombo, things from the city. And so that in and of itself signaled a kind of prestige building um, that I was really attuned to that I had not seen documented before in the plantation sector. Thank you for explaining that further. Um, In relation to also how you're talking about changing how um, we think of the value of different types of work. Um, In your chapter on wages, um, you actually discuss how union negotiations um, fail to um, attain satisfactory wages for plantation workers. Um, They fail repeatedly. Um, And this, uh, in some sense, echoes um, inadequacies of colonial era concessions to coolies and improving their working conditions. Um, in both cases, you link these failures um, to um, the leaving out of gendered work and non-wage financial mechanisms like debt um, from the calculation and from the negotiation. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this and how um, we can kind of understand the um, repeated failures of um, well-meaning action? Sure. I So, you know, thinking about kind of the collective wage, this is a, you know, when we think of kind of what what narratives dominate the plantation sector, um, this is a recurring narrative because the wage is so central to the plantation economy, um, the way in which the kind of economic success and profit calculations are made by the industry um, and stakeholders, but also for workers. Um, but thinking about kind of what that means in terms of the negotiation itself, um, when we kind of talk about this wage and how it's being calculated, um, 
in that sense of having a basic wage, which in Tamil is this idea of this adipari sambalam, this like so daily wage, like every day you just get a certain amount. And then on top of that, if you can pluck a little bit more, you get a cash wage supplement. And then if you do a certain thing, you get another supplement. Um, there were all these kind of factors into what made the wage. And so, you know, in that calculation, debt had never been talked about, you know, and debt had, hadn't been adequately addressed. And unionists would often talk about it, you know, in debates and to say, you know, we can't, you know, obviously we need a higher wage because there is debt. But I got really interested in this because of looking at people's pay stubs, basically. And and I think this is why ethnographic fieldwork helps in the sense that, you know, what you could go into someone's house on payday and you know see how much debt do they have right on their pay slips and how much debt um how much income are they actually bringing into a household um and how are households being calculated in the first place are who is considered part of the household in terms of you know how the archive would talk about a household member being reproductively viable, um, how nuclear families were designated by industrial stakeholders in the British period. So how did those kind of residues of the colonial calculations then transfer onto then what would be considered kind of political movements, union and labor organizing movements? So I was kind of tracing that to see, can we see the traces of that in the in the archive, but but the first thing I actually saw were those pay slips, and I think you know I as soon as I saw them in the field, I was able to understand why it was so hard um, to live on this wage. It just simply wasn't possible, and that kind of constantly battling that wage um, and the debts that were in the in the wage and built into the wage structure um, became a, what I call a condition of life and like a way that we kind of negotiate our life trajectories, um, whether a girl can get married, whether she can have a coming of age ceremony. And I was very interested in seeing the wage as kind of integrally tied to reproductive capacity, like how people see the reproductive capacity of their kin, of their households and the connections they make and the the status that they have within their communities. And so with that, it's kind of, you know, you know, if if archivists and, you know, as we kind of think about who what we look at for data, if if people had looked at it from a gendered perspective, would it be different, um, you know, to think about this and just having this data present and in one place, I think hopefully will help to see that debt is a is a factor that must be accounted for. Um, and we are seeing this, which is really nice. We're seeing kind of more conversations around the living wage and pushing for this since the book got published. But I think that's important to recognize that it's often not the first thing that's looked at. Um, debt is not looked at, even though the wage is so central, which is odd, right? <laughs> so... That's that's really interesting to me because my own yeah. work focuses on um, debt and interest. So that's that's a really key point, I think, and to bring it into the plantation context is super helpful. Um, in uh, moving from kind of the economics of it all to one of your most powerful chapters in which you ex- um, you explore placemaking, um, you write that although. Um, these people you're talking to are descendants of dispossessed migrants who are um, hailing from southern India. Over the generations, many of these hill country Tamils have come to invest Sri Lanka and even the violent space of the plantation um, with their labor and aspirations of home building. Um, in what way is this attention to plantation spaces as an Uru? Um, help us complicate narratives of displacement and landlessness as killer stories? Um, And what rights, claims, and idioms of national belonging does this way of thinking enable? Yeah, I this chapter is a special one because I, you know, I think it was what the the kind of first writing that I did um, for the book. And so I kind of wrote not in the order that the book is. So this chapter is kind of nestled in the in the middle. And it really was out of the ethnographic kind of fieldwork experience of being in homes um, and seeing what those homes meant, despite people within Sri Lanka, um, when I say, you know, you know, NGO workers, but also rights based, um, you know, actors saying that, 
people are landless. Um, what does that mean? And I was also, you know, I'm thinking of kind of, you know, the line room or the lime as a space that is constantly seen as a place of impurity, a place of lack of hygiene, of congestion, um, and that kind of obvious link to the British system um, and colonialism because it's an outgrowth, right? And and other anthropologists have talked about this, um, such as Sarah Besky, Andrew Wilford, and others. So it's been interesting to see those those conversations in relation to Sri Lanka um, and how the rights-based claims around land have played out. Um, I think most critically, though, is that, you know, that question of Ur is very much an anthropological experience for me because being Sri Lankan um, Tamil, not from the plantation sector, um, and also being American, I was always asked what my Ur was, um, what is my home or where am I from, um, very colloquially. And so that question, obviously the answer would change every time I would talk to somebody, depending on where I was and depending on who that person was. And so I really saw that question Ur as like a form of trust, but a sense of knowing someone. Um, and also this idea that, you know, that other scholars had talked about um, Malayaha Tamils or Hill Country Tamils as not having Ur in Sri Lanka. Um, and this was made in sort of a rights-based claim and a kind of plea to say, you know, they deserve a place and they're second-class citizens and so forth. But I found that people were saying that they had Ur and that Ur was there. And this was, you know, a generational difference, but also, you know, in the sense of, you know, how had people built homes? And I got very interested in, you know, seeing how a 12 by 7 foot original line room had literally been broken down so many times and also layer upon layers of cash cash had been put into unowned spaces and unpurchased spaces. And these practices or home building practices were continuing alongside rights-based practices and also land deeds and different kind of rights-based moves to give Hill Country Tamils land on the estates and titles. So it was happening at the same time. And so there was this kind of uneven geography of playing out, you know, of, of what is home. And I think that that was useful for me so it's one of the first things I always kind of do in fieldwork is, I, you know, to kind of think, like, where are we? You know, is this considered home and what is a home and how have people built it as such and how do they maintain it through their work, through their relationships, through um, and also amidst incredible environmental and social, you know, uh, instability and namely in that chapter I talk about um, the issue of landslides um, where homes literally get buried and even though they're not you know they are unpurchased homes so much cash flow and cash had been put into those spaces right and then they're just buried in mud uh, so these were the kinds of issues to kind of think about and it's I saw it as a very activated space um, to remember that people are active people are creating homes despite discourses of dispossession and and that is important to kind of remember too great yeah and that is also um important to remember as you're mentioning in in the context of doing solidarity work which brings us towards the end of the book um, where you discuss different examples of um, organizations trying to carry out solidarity work especially efforts to empower hill country tamil women um so what are the lessons that you think we can take away from these different examples, whether in the development sector or in union organizing? Um, you start to suggest that solidarity can build on but also go beyond these frames, um, for example, by rethinking the affective politics of imperial products like tea. Um, so could you just spell that out a little bit more for our listeners? Sure. Um, that last chapter, it's interesting. I, you know, I wrote it later on as well. And this was a chapter that came out of fieldwork that really began um, in the later stages of the, the, the fieldwork time. So 2014 onwards. And so in working with um, particularly one union that had decided to kind of take a different approach to labor organizing, um, specifically for plantation workers, by working and organizing women across sectors. 
And I thought that, you know, this would be useful to look at. Um, But also I thought what was useful was that, you know, my entry to that had been through development. And so to kind of take an opportunity to kind of get back to these questions of, you know, how is international development critical to the sustainability of labor organizing and also attending to the social and economic needs of plantation workers and their resident families. So that international development feature of plantation sector life and the way in which it kind of plays out, I wanted to kind of look at it particularly from a gendered perspective and look at it from girls' perspectives. Um, There was this period, and I talk a little bit about it in the chapter, of books to kind of... um, books that really, you know, or rather not books, but organizations that really were focusing on the girl, on the girl and the girl subject. And I got involved in that just by simply being part of the program itself. And this was a transnational program. And I thought about this kind of opening of space after the war and how Sri Lanka had been open to new types of funding, um, looking at funding trends more kind of within the country, but also regionally, of thinking of girls as kind of viable subjects for development um, and not really thinking about what girls actually want, but seeing the girl kind of as a figure. And, you know, scholars had written about this, you know, within development. And so I was interested to kind of actually look at the archive of how these projects get remembered, um, whether through social media, but also through, um, through, you know, the life histories of the girls that are actually part of the project. Um, so, so much was put into these programs and so much is invested in relationships um, that women are making um, within the community to be distinct, but also, you know, push for rights. But at the same time, it's incredibly contingent upon community support and so I and also funding. And so that sustainability is always going to be, um, you know, has the potential to be disrupted and to stop. And I got interested in the temporality of it, but also the kind of archiving of how we remember um, how we remember these rights based movements and what that praxis looks like. Um, and I think you know, as you know, we look at the kind of larger tea industry, my the closing of my research time that, you know, this book kind of covers is 2017, which was the 150th, you know, kind of celebration or, you know, jubilee celebration of the tea industry in Sri Lanka. So what we were seeing were majority of the stories coming out were kind of celebrating tea. There were a handful of stories that were also critical and asking people to look at the workers. And I think the kind of end of this book and also, you know, um, specifically the conclusion are kind of asking um, a larger public that consumes tea, that thinks of tea fondly um, as a drink, but also something that brings together communities. Um, are they willing to see that history and these disruptive stories um, alongside that? And is an ethics and ethical practice praxis possible um, in the continuation of the industry? That's a, that's a really interesting point. I mean, there's been this, um, uh, from the inside of anthropology, it seems like this boom in uh, talking about, you know, beloved commodities um, and studying things like coffee, chocolate, tea. Um, and yet, I feel like that often happens in ways which are not directly connected to rooted struggles in terms of um, unions or development projects. And um, your book kind of connects all those different um, strands of uh, empowerment efforts together in a very, yeah. very productive way. Um, so yeah. I, I what, recognize yeah. that. Yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I think um, I've also been, I mean, more towards the later part of my research <clears throat> with the end of the war and the opening up of that development sector What's also interesting is to note kind of in parallel and also in conjunction how India and Sri Lanka have been working together um, and specifically within the plantation sector. And I'm kind of looking at this um, in a new piece that I'm writing right now about that kind of populist um, frame, um, particularly of, Modi, you know, thinking of Modi's relationship and um, visit to the plantation sector in 2017 during this jubilation and you know, how he kind of referenced, you know, 
the plantation workers as kind of, you know, you made Sri Lanka your home, right? But you also have this connection, deep connection to India. So therefore, we're going to help you, right? And there's a lot of in-kind grants and loan assistance, um, you know, bilateral agreements that were being negotiated. So the question, and I just remember because there's a lot of kind of, you know, talk about Modi having a background in tea. And in his speech, he actually said in English, you know, we have something in common. And he, you know, kind of referenced the slogan about chai. And and it was an interesting moment to how the kind of paternalism and that those kind of stories of tea come together, um, particularly when India and Sri Lanka have such a contentious relationship because of the civil war, but they're kind of working through the tea sector to kind of, um, you know, build these um, solidarities that are very much nationalistic and also majoritarian in many different ways, right? So that's interesting to kind of see play out in the new context. Yeah, that actually, again, anticipated um, what I was just going to ask you, which is um, basically, what are you going to be working on next? Um, With the full recognition that uh, the pandemic has turned people's lives upside down and learning from your book um, that, you know, the undervalued work of survival and social reproduction is still work. Um, So you're working on a comparative project, it sounds like. Um, so a new project that I reference in the conclusion um, was thinking more kind of, you know, with uh, with these narratives that assume that hill country Tamils are on the estates and fixed to the landscape, um, fixed to the plantation economy, um, kind of deconstructing that um, through archival work, but also new ethnographic field work in the northern province. And these stories um, had really come out during my field work, but I was not investigating them because I was kind of situated in the field um, in the south central provinces. But since the 1950s and into kind of the late 1980s or early 1980s, um, you know, thousands of migrants or were, you know, thousands of hill country Tamils rather were displaced to what were now kind of seen as the former war zones in the northern province. And these were through a series of either, you know, anti-Tamil riots that had kind of, um, you know, come out during the civil war. So 1958, 71, 77, and 83 in the hill country. And then also just waves of migrants that had gone to the north because the plantation sector was simply not a viable um, place for income and for, you know, survival. So these waves of migrants lived in the former war zones and were displaced there, but then over the war period were displaced three or four times. Um, And, you know, what I'm looking at now in working with you know, northern hill country Tamils in that area is the question again of home, but also, you know, what is the plantation beyond the plantation? And how can we learn by looking outside kind of, you know, Sri Lanka's own kind of, you know, regional politics of, you know, how we see the region, but learning from other kind of post-plantation and afterlives of plantations beyond the region. Um, And I think there's a lot to say about, you know, what what agrarian you know what agrarian relationships look like in northern province um, with specifically to caste oppression and also interethnic um, relationships. So this is something I'm interested in: this question of being tenants, being landless, and how that kind of relates to, if at all, to the plantations and those histories. That sounds like an excellent follow-up project to what you've just worked on and I can't wait to read and learn more. Um, Thank you so much for being with us on the show and for talking about your wonderful book. Thank you so much, Parna. I really appreciate it.